In this episode of the IDS Between the Lines podcast, IDS fellow Lars Otto Ness interviews Dr. Neil McCulloch about his new book, Ending Fossil Fuel Subsidies, The Politics of Saving the Planet. In the podcast, Neil discusses that fossil fuel subsidies are killing both people and the planet because they encourage the excessive consumption of fossil fuels, which exacerbate pollution and climate change and waste huge sums that could be used far better. Neil lays out a new agenda for action on fossil fuel subsidies, showing how a better understanding of the underlying political incentives can lead to more effective approaches to tackling this major global problem. This podcast is essential listening for all studying and researching climate change, green transformations and climate justice. Hi everyone and welcome to this podcast. Our guest today is Neil McCulloch, Director at Policy and Practice as well as an Associate Fellow at IDS. Welcome Neil. Thank you very much. And we will talk about your new book, uh, which is ambitiously called Ending Fossil Fuel Subsidies, but with perhaps a revealing subtitle that hints at where your particular focus is, namely the politics of saving the planet. Uh, the book is just out with Practical Action Publishers and uh, I believe it's available for free download at the website as well. So to, to start with, can you tell us a little bit about why you wrote this book? Why I wrote the book? Um, I mean, fossil fuel subsidies and the reform of fossil fuel subsidies has been a passion of mine for perhaps over a decade now. I, I lived for many years in Indonesia and uh, I was there for eight years in total. Um, and during the time I was there, I was an uh, economist working for the World Bank. Uh, Indonesia was spending 20% on of its budget subsidizing energy, predominantly subsidizing petrol. And that just struck me as completely crazy. You know, why, uh, when there were so many needs in health and in education and infrastructure, was 20% of the budget being spent uh, subsidizing um, petrol effectively mm-hmm. and electricity as well? Uh, and so it got me interested in, in the topic and initially you start analysing it and saying, well, this is crazy and you shouldn't do this and you should do this instead and so forth. And then you realise that there are more deep-seated reasons why these subsidies exist, not just in Indonesia but in many countries. Mm-hmm. And so I got very interested in trying to understand what the, why these subsidies exist, why they persist yeah. uh, and why they're so hard to, to get rid of. Right, thank you. Yeah, so to, to take a step back, can you um, explain a little bit about what fossil fuel subsidies are to people like me who have, have heard about them but don't know the, the sort of nitty gritties and the detail of what they are? Sure, absolutely. So there's, there's basically two types of fossil fuel subsidies. There's production subsidies and there's consumption subsidies. Production subsidies is where the government uh, effectively gives a chunk of money to uh, fossil fuel companies or energy companies of one kind or another to lower their costs of production. Um, and so uh, that makes it cheaper for them to, to suck up oil and gas uh, and therefore uh, easy to operate. Uh, and there are lots of those, particularly in richer countries. Um, however, the vast majority of fossil fuel subsidies are actually consumption subsidies. Consumption subsidies is where the government sets a price for a fuel, whether it's petrol or diesel or kerosene or LPG or or sometimes electricity, if the electricity is produced by a fossil fuel. Um, It sets that price below the cost to produce it. So, for example, uh, if a country sets the price of 40 cents for a litre for petrol, but it actually costs them a dollar to get that litre of petrol, then the 60 cents difference is a subsidy that they're effectively providing to consumers. So that's consumer subsidies. Right. Okay. 
Thank you. So um, there are lots of figures being bantered about of how big they are. I mean, we have a sense that they are very, very big. But can you explain a little bit about what sizes we're talking about? And what are different? Maybe also a little bit we should talk about in the book the different ways of estimating. Yeah, so the, the issue of how big fossil fuel subsidies are is, is a controversial one. Uh, the short answer is really big. <laughs> um, so the, um, uh, the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, which is a sort of um, club of rich countries, um, uh, they do an estimate together with the IMF of how big fossil fuel subsidies are. And for 2021, they came up with an estimate of $732 billion dollars. So just by way of comparison, that's almost four times all overseas development assistance, all aid, if you like. So it's really big. Um, on the other hand, there are some people, notably the IMF, who say, actually, that's, that's wrong. It's not $732 uh, billion, dollars, which is already a big number. It's really $5.9 trillion, dollars, which is 6% of the global economy. And the reason why the IMF say that And there's a lot of critique of that. But the reason why they say that is that the IMF take into account the damage done by subsidies. So they're calculating what economists call the externality. So the, the health damage associated with the particulate emissions of coal or the, or, <clears throat> or the climate change damage caused by burning, you know, burning petroleum products. So if you add in all of those, then you end up with this very, very big number, 6% of all global GDP. But even if you take the smaller number, it's still a really big number. It's still, still very large. Yeah, indeed. I mean, there's also the climate change finance available and, and yeah. even the targets. So um, these are very big figures indeed. And can you say a little bit about who the biggest culprits are and, and where are the, the sort of... Is it all over... Uh, most governments, or is it? The, are there some? So, so again, it fluctuates a little bit, but there are um, there there are certain characteristics of countries which tend to have larger fossil fuel subsidies. First of all, oil exporting countries tend to have very large fossil fuel subsidies. Part of that is because for some oil exporters, it's cheap for them to to suck up oil in the ground, and they can sell it for a high price on the world market. So the subsidy is calculated as, <coughs> excuse me, as the difference between uh, the, the, the domestic price and the international price. But for them, they say, well, actually, that's the wrong calculation because we can, we can actually uh, suck up this oil much cheaper. So, so you'll find a lot of oil exporters uh, have very large fossil fuel subsidies, but they say that they don't. Notably, Saudi Arabia was one of the biggest uh, uh, subsidizers in the world. But then there are other countries like Iran, for example, which sells its petrol incredibly cheap, and uh, but has to still has to refine or import uh, uh, all of it. And um, there's also uh, the U.S. is also a culprit. It has substantial subsidies. So does the U.K. Even though the U.K. says that it has no subsidies, but. The the big culprits are other countries like Algeria, Nigeria. Um, the interesting thing is that most people think that there's only perhaps you know five to ten countries that where this is a big issue. That's not true. Mm -hmm. um, if you look around, you'll find that more than 70 countries around the world have got fossil fuel subsidies, which are more than one percent of their GDP, which is quite a lot. That's a typical benchmark. Mm -hmm. And there are around about 40 countries where subsidies are more than two percent of the entire GDP of the country. So it's getting really significant. 
Uh, and in some countries, like Uzbekistan, for example, it's 15% of GDP. So, so even though some of these countries may have a small quantitative amount of subsidy, the share of their economy is very large. Those are huge amounts, indeed. Um, I, I mean, there's this, of course, a global picture here of the insanity of having subsidies going to fossil fuels while we're at the same time trying to reduce the damage of fossil fuels or, or moving away from fossil fuels altogether to low-carbon sources. But, of course, these are, for the most part, I, I imagine, domestically uh, domestic subsidies. Yeah. and. How do you, how do countries then, even at the domestic level, sustain and justify these enormous expenses? Well, I mean, it's a good question, and and there's all sorts of different reasons given. But but just on this point of impact, I mean, you're absolutely right saying that fossil fuel subsidies are very damaging from a climate point of view. I mean, it's just completely crazy if we're trying to. Um, keep 1.5 alive if it's even alive um, if we're trying to get to net zero by 2050 and so on that, that there, are, there are several countries around the world that are subsidizing fossil fuels this is the thing that's generating the greenhouse gases which is giving rise to the problem so it's something that as a global community we, we shouldn't be doing but it's also important not to forget that there are other uh, costs associated with subsidies um, one key one is air pollution and so uh, a lot of there are 3.4 million deaths, I think the WHO estimate, as a result of outdoor air pollution. Most of that outdoor air pollution is particulates, a lot of it which is coming either from vehicle emissions or from uh, coal-fired uh, power stations. So, so there's a huge amount of damage which has been caused by fossil fuel subsidies, quite separate from the climate change argument. And, of course, it spends a huge amount of money. Uh, it's spending several multiples of the health budget. In Nigeria, the spending on um, fossil fuel subsidies, for example, is at least three times the health budget, which is completely nuts. You know, Think of the improvements that you might be able to supply in health service if you were able to actually redirect some of those resources towards, uh, towards health. But just in terms of this issue of arguments that people give, what's the justification? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I think the answer is that there's a political deal made between governments and their citizens as part of a social contract, if you like, that says uh, we will give you cheap fuel or cheap electricity. Uh, That's part of the deal for you being happy with us uh, ruling. And that political compact, that social contract, if you like, is at the core of why it makes it hard for these things to be removed. Because if, as a politician or if as a government, you've made that deal and you said, right, well, part of the deal is I'm going to give you cheap petrol, then it's very hard for you to break that contract. You know that people will be very unhappy, they won't vote for you, they will maybe protest on the streets and so forth if you suddenly bump up the prices because the one thing you promised was that you were going to keep energy prices low. So it makes it sticky uh, because it's hard for them to break that contract. So um, in that sense... You could, you could argue that, of course, the, the, there's a huge amount of damage done by the fossil fuel subsidies, but there are also benefits. Kind of, uh, of, I think also in the book you, you argue that uh, it's not always bad no. at, at a, from a domestic point of view. Well, I think one of the key challenges with subsidy reform is that, you know, apart from a handful of people like myself who are sort of very interested in fossil fuel subsidy reform, subsidy reform is not really a sexy thing. 
You know, what people care about is not subsidy reform. What people care about is being able to afford energy, being able to afford food, being able to send their kids to school, being able to get decent health care and so forth. These are the things that actually have real political resonance. And so it's entirely understandable for governments, for politicians, to want to try and supply those things. And one of the most immediate things that they can do is fix a price. And one of the reasons, one of the explanations for why there are so many fossil fuel subsidies around the world is that if you are a government with relatively limited capabilities for delivering complicated things like health and education, then you may struggle to deliver an adequate service. But it's dead easy to set a price. You know, you can just fix the price and say, this is what the price is going to be. And everyone goes, yay, we get cheap fuel. So, so it's a much easier thing for someone to offer, particularly if they haven't got the bureaucratic capabilities to be able to do a good job of, of uh, service provision. And that's why we see quite often fixing of electricity tariffs, fixing of petrol prices and so on. Right. And in terms of the equity, who's, who's, who's the main beneficiary, so to speak, in, in the country? Yeah, I mean, the equity issue is, is a real problem because uh, what you'll find around the world um, is that uh, fossil fuel subsidies are extremely inequitable. So the vast majority of the benefit go to people who consume fossil fuels. And the people who consume fossil fuels are the ones who've got cars or have got trucks or have got, got you know, vehicles that actually consume fossil fuels. So as a result, studies that have been done in several countries around the world show that the, the bulk of the benefit goes to the rich. Uh, on average, we find around about six times as much benefit goes to the top you know, 20% or so of the population relative to the bottom 20% of the population. Now, in theory, that should mean that it doesn't matter if you reform subsidies, because if you reform subsidies, you're only hurting the, the better off. Unfortunately, that's not true. Um, because when you reform subsidies, often it entails a significant price, re- price rise. And when that price rises of fuel, fuel is an input to lots of other things. And in particular, it's an input to, to food uh, because you've got to truck food around the country. And so as a result, you quite often find whenever you get a big fuel price rise, you'll also then get a rise in food prices. Well, food is something which is a large share of the budgets of the relatively poor. And so quite often subsidy reforms can still hurt the poor, even though they didn't benefit very much from the subsidy in the first place. Right. Okay. And so following this, I, think, I know you have a number of examples in the, in the country, uh, in a country case studies in your book. Um, and can you explain a little bit about what you see as sort of good examples of countries that have successfully reduced or even eliminated subsidies? So I can give you an example from Indonesia, which is a sort of partial success, um, but a very interesting one. Um, back in 2014, when uh, Joko Widodo, or Jokowi as he's popularly known, was the candidate for being president, he campaigned on the basis of removing fossil fuel subsidies. And he said, I'm going to get rid of these things, which is very unusual. Most people kept quiet about it. But he said, no, no, this is crazy. This is a silly policy. We're wasting all this money on it. I'm going to get rid of these things. And in return, I'm going to give you free health and free education. In fact, he had a little, he always wore a check shirt and he had two little cards in the top pocket and he would whip them out at every campaign rally saying, I'm giving you kartu pintar, kartu sahat, you know, the education card and the health card. Um, and, and people believed him. People said, okay, this is a new candidate. Uh, he was the first president from a non-elite background. And so they bought into it. He won the election by, by a landslide. And then when he got in, he, he delivered. So he, he cut the subsidies, transferred a large share of budget over into the 
you know, basically the budget that had been used for fossil fuel subsidy was then spent on health and education and infrastructure, that sort of thing. And it was a big success. The sting in the tail of that story is that a few years later, uh, international prices started to rise. He had put in place a system whereby the local prices, the domestic prices, were going to rise in line with the international prices so that the subsidy wouldn't re-emerge. But it was politically inconvenient for him to continue with that. So he stopped that and just held the prices fixed. And of course, as international prices rose and rose and rose and rose, the subsidy ballooned again. And so we're back now in a situation last year where subsidies are 20% of the budget, just as they were when I was working in Indonesia all those years ago. <laughs> so what, is, what, is, what are his options or the, the government's op- option in this? Well, I mean, at, at the moment, of course, there's an election coming up, so nobody's going to touch this issue and they're going to wait until after the election. But at some point, someone is going to have to deal with it again. Mm-hmm. And, and this is actually a story that we, we hear around the world. It's a tough thing to deal with, but the toughest thing is changing the system. It's not just doing a reform. You can always bump up the price and then there'll be a protest or whatever, and you put up with the protest and you hope you don't get kicked out, and then, you, then you've sort of ridden the wave for a little while. But if you just do that, the, sub, the subsidy problem comes back again if you're fixing prices. What you need to do is shift towards a system where prices track international prices more frequently. And if they do that, then subsidies disappear, and that those resources can be can be uh, devoted towards other things. Right. But it's hard politically to change the system. Yeah. Um, and, and in that situation, um, I mean, in normal circumstances, the, the opposition would perhaps latch onto that and say, "You promised this." Yeah. Yes, look, exactly. Look at where it is now. Yeah. And do you see that? Well, well, what you actually see is the opposite, which yeah. is. So there's a very good example, a recent example from Indonesia, where um, a a large part of the subsidy in Indonesia is now not for petrol, but for liquid petroleum gas, LPG. They have little little LPG uh, three kilogram cylinders called melons because they're painted green and uh, they look a bit like a melon. And, um, And these are everywhere. Every household uses these little three kilogram LPG things because they're hugely subsidized. You can buy an unsubsidized one if you're rich, you can buy a big one. But why would you buy a big one when you can buy lots of little ones for, for half the price? So, um, so everybody uses these three kilograms. So most of the benefit is going to the middle classes or to the better off because they're buying them as much as the poor are buying them far more. But so what, what the, the government very sensibly did was it said... You know, we want to be in favor of the energy transition. We want to move people over to induction stoves so that they'll have electric cooking instead of using a fossil fuel. And, and, and the whole world was saying, oh, this is great and wonderful. And then one of the opposition leaders said, you are stealing people's LPG stoves from them. We will oppose this policy. <laughs> and as soon as they said that, it turned it into a political issue, which was going to be difficult for the election. And the government instantly backed down and said, no, 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 we're not doing that after all. So these reforms are hard, even where they're very sensible reforms. They're hard because of the politics. Yes, indeed, and and this is kind of a thread through the, the your book as well. That is, it's all political. It's all context specific. And you gave the example of Indonesia, where it has kind of worked for a while, but doesn't work. So there's clearly no silver bullet here uh, mm. to to solving this problem and and removing or reforming the, the sector. But um, you do give a lot of recommendations, and I like that about the book. You, you, you're quite clear about the recommendations. Can you kind of say what, what are the lessons we can learn from Indonesia and other countries? That so I think yeah. the key thing that we've 
learned from you know 20 years or whatever of trying to tackle this problem is it's not a technical problem it's not a technical problem we treat it as though it's a technical problem you know the world is full of economists who analyze the prices and say well this is a bit silly it would be so much better if we allocated resources in a different way and the that's losing sight of the the, the crux of the matter it's fundamentally a political problem this is about a bargain between uh, governments and their citizens. This is about the nature of the political settlement and how rents are captured within a f- any individual society. Mm-hmm. And you have to understand that. And so I don't think we've given enough time and thought to try and understand the way in which politics actually functions in each of the countries in which these recommendations are, are being made. So that's the first point. The second point is, if that's true, if it's fundamentally politically a political issue, then it can only really be solved in the long term through a, a political uh, vehicle. That is to say, it's, it's got to be something which is driven by domestic political actors who are, mani- who are able, like Jokowi did, in capturing something which is politically popular, a narrative that, that resonated with the local population, and saying, I will give you something better than fossil fuel subsidies. When that happens, you see success not just in Indonesia, but in other countries around the world, where you've got smart politicians who are coming up with a domestic political strategy that has resonance in that context. That makes it politically feasible to move. So rather than doing what we've been doing for so many years, which is coming up with technical recommendations, saying you really ought to do this, and you know, wagging our finger at countries and saying, oh, you've got terribly big subsidies, where you know, our IMF loan is now conditional upon you doing something about them, and so forth. And quite often we see that people will make reforms, but then those reforms will unwind. What we need to think about is who are the domestic political constituencies that are in favour of changing the energy system, changing the energy system so that it delivers for citizens, and, and then, once, uh, once you identify those, how can we work with those? How can we support their strategies in order to be able to deliver reform? And I think that's a much more effective and a much more sustainable route than the, the rather technocratic approach that we've taken today. I, I, I do get that. And, and, of course, you've outlined a number of the, these issues at the domestic level. And if, if it was only impacts at the domestic level, it would be one thing. But, of course, these are planetary implications and I know estimates of how big an impact on the climate the fossil fuel subsidies have but still it's substantial yes and what what is the role then of the international community I mean what is the the role of donors for example can they yeah so so I I think there's a very important role for external actors uh, whether it's donors or international communities or uh, international NGOs in pushing for reform, in highlighting the issue. So that's the usual role, if you like. But what has traditionally been the role of the of uh, external actors has been to do this sort of technical work. And that, again, drags it back to being a technical problem. So one of the things which I, I try and emphasise in the book is that we need to actually think much more about how this works politically in a particular country, in a particular context, and analyse that. You know, there are political scientists in the world that are capable of analysing the nature of the political settlement of a particular country, where the rents are, who captures them, how they capture them, what those rents are used for. These really drive the way in which countries tick, the way in which those countries work. And unless we understand that, it's very hard to come up with 
politically feasible reforms. You can come up with a technically sensible reform, but it won't happen. You need something which is both technically sensible and also politically feasible. So putting time and effort into analysing and understanding that and then supporting coalitions of domestic actors to, to, to push for reform, that is something donors can do. And it's particularly something interesting that bilateral donors can do. A lot of the work on fossil fuel subsidy reform has been done by multilaterals, mostly the World Bank. And that's great. They do some fantastic work uh, on this, uh, all credit to them. But the World Bank are prohibited by their constitution from engaging politically in countries. They have to pretend that everything is technical, even though, they, of course, the nature of the things that they do is often quite political. Um, but it's hard for them to explicitly engage on political stuff. That isn't a problem for bilateral donors. Bilateral donors are able to work with civil society groups, they're able to work with the media, they're able to work with parliamentarians, they're able to reach out beyond just the small coterie of, of civil servants around the Ministry of Finance to a much broader range of actors and try and facilitate the, act, uh, the actions of those actors to, to pull together coalitions for, for reform. And in terms of, but in terms of the, the sort of credibility of these donors, so to say, so to say, if you have bilateral donors, say from the EU countries, the UK, they themselves have, have a lot of subsidies. Yes, so they do. What, what is the credibility of, of kind <laughs> very of good the, point. The, uh, absolutely, yeah, it's a the very donors telling other people what or all the countries what and that's why they shouldn't they, they shouldn't be wagging their finger and telling countries what to do they should be supporting the domestic agendas and they should appreciate and understand how hard it is now now incidentally because of the the awful war in Ukraine yeah. donors and 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 western countries in particular are suddenly in a similar position to many developing countries on fossil fuel subsidies Suddenly, they've introduced price guarantees and price caps on energy in order to try and protect citizens from high prices. And it's completely understandable why they've done that. It's, it's an awful situation we find ourselves in with these huge energy bills and people trying to make choices between heating and eating. It shouldn't be a situation that people find themselves in and governments have acted. The challenge there will be what happens when those subsidies disappear? Suddenly, the prices will jump up again. And then governments uh, will find themselves in exactly the same situation as many developing country governments do when they try and reform uh, subsidies. So they maybe will appreciate that the, the political the dynamics much should go better. the other way. Then. So the learning maybe should go the other way, actually. Yeah. There's a lot of experience for that. But I think instead of wagging fingers, it should be a matter of partnership. Yeah. You know, this is a problem globally. Uh, this is a problem we all face. Governments, particularly governments that do care about their citizens, are trying to protect their citizens. But you don't protect your citizens by fixing prices. You create problems down the line because the, that, that subsidy builds and builds and builds until it eventually blows out and you end up with a very large price rise. What you need is much more effective mechanisms of gradually adjusting prices so that you don't get an accumulation of subsidies over time and a mechanisms of protecting people who might be hurt by price rises. Uh, in, in your book, you talk about COVID-19 uh, and the Ukraine war as kind of missed opportunities. Can you, uh, can you explain, ex expand on what the opportunities were and why were they missed and yes. what can we do about it? So, so during COVID, um, there was, of course, a collapse in the oil price. There was a sudden um, reduction in demand for fossil fuels and that made the oil price collapse so I mean as we're speaking we've got very high oil prices as a result of the war in Ukraine but during COVID time of course the oil price was $20 a barrel 
And when the international price falls, in many cases it was falling right down to the level that countries had set their domestic price for, for fuel. So there was no subsidy. It was gone. There was no gap. If at that point countries had said, you know what, this is a great opportunity, we can abolish subsidies at very little cost because there won't be a big price rise, and, and then we can change the way in which we set prices so that it latches on to world prices, you could smooth them, smooth prices a little bit, but, but we'll, we'll, we'll track the international prices so that this problem won't re-emerge. But they didn't do that. Unfortunately, they said, hey, this is great. This is a bonus. You know, the oil prices are down. And let's face it, we're in the middle of a pandemic. So that's a nice bonus to have, uh, to have cheap, cheap uh, energy. But they didn't change the fossil fuel subsidy systems. They did, however, worry about the fact that their oil and gas companies weren't profitable. Because with $20 a barrel, you're not making any money if you're an oil and gas company. So they gave a whole set of production subsidies <laughs> to oil and gas companies to keep them employing people and keep them in business. Uh, because they were worried that they would fall over. So we found COVID, rather than abolishing subsidies, uh, they ended up actually increasing subsidies to oil and gas companies. Then, of course, we've recently seen over the last year the, the awful war in Ukraine. And that sends uh, oil and gas prices absolutely rocketing up. Um, and here we've got almost the exact opposite problem. Now governments are desperately trying to shield their uh, citizens, shield their consumers from these very high prices by putting in place consumer subsidies. And one totally understands why they want to do that. At the same time, the oil and gas companies are now making billions of dollars of profit every quarter because of these astronomically high prices. In a few cases, governments are clawing a little bit of that back through windfall taxes, but not actually very much. Most of that burden is going to fall on future taxpayers. And then the opportunity there is to say, well, actually in the long run, if, if we're worried about climate change, we want fossil fuel subsidy. We want fossil fuel prices to remain high. Fossil fuel prices should be high so that people will switch to alternatives. Mm -hmm. So the ideal thing would be as prices begin to come down, and they're already beginning to come down a little bit, as prices begin to come down, governments should keep fossil fuel prices high and claw back the subsidy as they move down. So they would, they would be able to uh, effectively increase the tax rate as they come down, which would reduce the subsidy. And that way you keep fossil fuel prices high, and that would dissuade people from using fossil fuels and encourage the transition. But it seems very unlikely politically that that will happen. Either. Would that not be a political suicide? So exactly, exactly. It would, be, it would be very difficult. What everybody's doing is looking at the oil price and saying, you must give us that back mm. now. And so it's very hard for any politician to say what but we actually need is high fossil fuel prices. Yeah. In terms of the windfall tax, um, can we expand a bit about that? I mean, there's been a lot of books on that in the UK and the disappointment that the government hasn't done more. Um, that sounds like, on the face of it, uh, uh, something politically... Politically doable, yes. Yeah. Uh, it is politically doable uh, if you were to give the general public... A voice uh, in this matter. But actually that's a very nice example of a rather fundamental problem with all of these energy sector reforms. The reason why um, uh, fossil fuel, why windfall taxes haven't been used uh, more um, is because the nature of the political settlement in the UK, for example, is intertwined with that of the fossil fuel industry. 
And this is not just the case of the UK. This is true in many, many countries. So when um, governments are making decisions, they aren't just making decisions from the perspective of the citizen and what the citizen wants. They're also thinking, where's my funding coming from? And if my funding is coming from fossil fuel sources, then I don't want to do something which is damaging the industry, which is paying for my election campaigns. This is true in many countries. So as a result, you, you have things which seem obvious. You know, it's obvious we should do a windfall tax in order to claw back these profits in order to pay for the, the protection that we're going to provide for citizens. But they don't get implemented nearly to the extent that you would expect because in the back of the mind, politicians are thinking to themselves, hang on a minute, who's paying? And this is true across the world. Do you see any hope through this? I mean, <laughs> I do actually. Yes. <laughs> no, I, I, I do, and I think it's. Uh, I'm being a little bit. Um, I'm throwing up all sorts of problems as to how this could never get solved. But the reality is that it does get solved. In many countries, have done significant reforms. I mentioned the Indonesia one, and yes, it's unravelled, but it was a major reform. India has done major reforms of its diesel uh, and LPG subsidies and so forth. Iran, back in 2010, even though it's got big subsidies now, also did a major reform. There are countries that have done these things. And if you look around, um, before the Ukraine war, if you look around uh, most of the better-off countries, middle-income and richer countries, very few consumer subsidies, mostly producer subsidies there. So, so these things are capable of reform, but they're only capable of reform if you understand the nature of domestic politics and then you support something which is consistent with that domestic politics. So this is a long game in a sense, rather than the quick fix, which is what sometimes economists will come up with and say, oh, you just need to click your finger and sign something and make this policy change and it'll all be fine. What we need to do is invest in understanding the way in which countries work and then support domestic agendas which will lead to a better energy system overall. And part of that better energy system overall, it'll be a cleaner energy system, a greener energy system, but it'll also be one with far fewer fossil fuel subsidies. Right. But do you think we are, is there any sort of signs that you see that we're approaching some kind of tipping point where things are kind of starting to move in the right direction, either through the inevitability of uh, transition, um, and the weight of evidence on climate change. I know you say in the book that these constituencies don't respond to evidence, but do you think, are there um, any signs? I, well, I think, see? I mean, one thing which is very interesting, and I, I don't discuss this so much in the book, but I actually think it's a very important uh, issue, is that there's a change in mindset now. In 1990, which was, gosh, how many years ago now? <laughs> 33 years ago? I was, a, uh, I was an air pollution and climate change campaigner for Friends of the Earth, 33 years ago. And at the time, we did campaigns on climate change, and everyone just laughed at us. I said, that's ridiculous. You know, it's complete nonsense. Nobody laughs at you when you mention climate change anymore. It's all over the news. Politicians talk about it left, right, and center. Global world leaders are up there saying, you know, we have to tackle climate change. It's the number one priority, and so on. The whole mindset has changed. Mm. Everyone now recognizes that this is an existential threat, both for us but for the planet as a whole, and that measures have to be taken. There's a huge civil society movement all built around trying to protect the planet, trying to find ourselves a climate-compatible future. Mm. So, so I think that is enormous change over the last 30 years, and that bodes well for making progress down the line. Having said that, it depends a lot on what your immediate priorities are in any given country. 
climate may be the most important thing in, you know, I don't know, Norway or the UK or somewhere or other. But it isn't the most important thing for your average citizen in, in most countries around the world. You know, the most important thing for them is being able to, you know, feed their, feed their family and to get their kids to school and get decent health care and be able to trans- travel wherever they want to travel. And, you know, these are the, the nitty gritty day to day issues that politicians have to take into account. And that's why I think the progress will be made when we find agendas which resonate with progress. That is to say, if we want to deal with fossil fuel subsidies, don't focus on fossil fuel subsidies. Focus on changing the energy system and presenting a vision of change of the energy system which will generate better education, better health, better roads. These are the the, the positive things which you have to present as a politician in order to get the buy-in to make the more difficult reforms. Yeah, no, I, th- I think you, you make that point very well in the book as well about making it relevant to something that benefits people and if you are going to reform it then, then you will have to do that. Coming back to, I, I want to continue a little bit on climate change anyway. We've just had COP27 and we are now coming up to COP28 later this year, the head of the EU, AE, um, climate change chair in the in the country will be uh, an oil boss, yep. I think. Yeah. So, do you think do you see that as a good thing or, or <laughs> not a good thing? Well, it uh, certainly sends a message, doesn't it, when the the head of an oil and gas company is the head of COP. I mean, what an irony, indeed. Uh, uh, UAE, to be fair to them, are also one of the pioneers on renewables, and, and Mastar is yes. being spreading renewables all around the world as well. That's what the UAE would say. Yeah. I know it's extremely worrying. We saw more, you know, um, uh, oil and gas lobbyists uh, at COP27 than ever before, mm. and I think the oil and gas industry have more than woken up to the potential threat that. Uh, that tackling climate change has upon their business model, and they're doing their best to slow things down. Yeah. Um, and I think that's where the the real challenge comes. If we are to have any serious chance of tackling climate change, we need to be in a situation where people are persuaded, people not persuaded intellectually, but, but the, the circumstances in which people live make them more likely to do things which are good for the climate than things which are bad. And one of those environmental, one of those, one of those factors is the price of fossil fuels. If fossil fuels remain cheap, then people will use them. And we can have endless appeals to, oh, you want to be green for the planet, and oh, you should have an electric car, and you should do this, and you should do that, and all the rest of it. But if fossil fuels are cheap, people will use them. Unless people are stopped from using them, which they won't be, other people will use them. If fossil fuels are expensive, people will stop using them, or they will seriously look for alternatives. So some people say, oh, no, 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 what we need to do is just give lots and lots of incentives to renewables. Well, that's good. I'm all in favor of giving incentives to renewables. And, and of course, we've just seen the Inflation Reduction Act in the, in the US give huge incentives. In fact, it's creating a problem in the EU yes. now because they're having a big battle over who can give bigger subsidies. Um, but it's, it's a good thing to give incentives for renewables to try and encourage that switch. But how is that going to get paid for? It's got to get paid for by taxpayers. Well... Where's the money going to come from? One place in which that money can come from is by removing fossil fuel subsidies. We're already spending all of this money on making fossil fuels cheaper. So if we had a gradual program over a period of time which made fossil fuels more expensive, those resources can then be channeled 
into and pay for the transition that needs to take place. Without a reform of that nature, it's much more expensive and it's much takes much longer to achieve uh, that transition. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's important. But as I say, whether it actually happens in any individual context will depend upon finding a political narrative that actually resonates. What do you hope the audience will get from your book? Uh, so I think the audience, I hope, will get two things. First of all, they'll get a lot of information about fossil fuel subsidies that maybe they didn't know before, and uh, it's a very interesting topic. But secondly, I think I hope that they get an appreciation of the complexity of the politics around reform in individual country contexts and the importance of understanding, of thinking and working politically, of understanding that political context before one comes up with solutions. There's a tendency to rush forward and say, we've got a solution for you. That's not going to work. For complex political forms of this nature, you really have to understand the way in which the country ticks first. And then you need to have something that, yes, is technically sensible, but it's also got to be politically feasible. Yeah. No, that, that, and that sounds like a good, good note to, to end our conversation on. Uh, thank you very much, Neil, uh, for coming to tell us this fascinating story, fascinating uh, book, and well worth reading. Really, really well written and Make it making it uh, simple and understandable for a wide audience, and I appreciate that very much. Thank you very much, Lars. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and share to help us spread the word. Do you have a great book we could feature in a future episode? Then get in touch on email at between the lines at ids.ac.uk.